Good evening. If you would uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied, and by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide his spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressions, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word this evening. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made. God, that you were afflicted for us. So God, would you speak to us? Would you minister to us through your word this evening? Have your way during this time. God, be glorified in this place this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you were to look at Rembrandt's painting of the three crosses, your attention would first be drawn to the center, right, where Jesus is on the cross, where Jesus died. But then as you continue to look, you'd start to see the, the crowd that has gathered around the foot of the cross. You'd be impressed by the, the various facial impressions, the actions of those involved of the awful crime of crucifying the Son of God. And perhaps finally your eyes might drift to the edge of the painting and you might catch a figure there kind of in the dark, almost hidden in the shadows. And many art critics speculate that it was perhaps a rep representation of Rembrandt himself. For he recognized that by his sins he helped nail Jesus to the cross. And I think when we come to Good Friday, we need to consider our own place before the foot of the cross. It was our sins that held him there. You know, Isaiah says in verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah asks a question. Who's believed the report? 
who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And for Isaiah, the, the answer was very, was very, very few. You see, Israel was looking for a conquering king, not someone lowly sitting on a donkey, as we considered on Sunday. You know, in John chapter 12, verses 37 through 41, it says, But although he had done so many signs before them, he did not, or sorry, they did not believe him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. You know, it's interesting. Not much has changed today, has it? That that Jesus is still clouded that there are so many that refuse to believe, as Isaiah says, the report. To understand that the the arm of the Lord has has been revealed. You know, it's interesting that, that Isaiah 53 is the forbidden chapter. You know, it doesn't matter if it's here or in Israel you know, you can go online and you can look up and see the schedule for the temple readings. And Isaiah 53 is always excluded. Because they, they don't know what to do with this chapter. They were looking for a conquering king. And so Isaiah 53 doesn't make sense to them. In fact, they believed that it was the early church Christians that inserted this chapter into the book of Isaiah. And they believed that up until 1947, when a little shepherd boy was looking for his lost sheep. And he threw a stone, and when he threw that stone, he heard this little clink. And so he threw another stone, and he heard another clink. And it's when those Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Proving that this chapter was in Isaiah long before the early church existed. But even still today, even knowing that this chapter was there before Christ, they still don't know what to do with it. You see, Isaiah is speaking about a Messiah who was coming to suffer and to die. And so as we consider this chapter this evening... There are nine things that I want to point out about our suffering servant this evening. Nine things that are brought out in this chapter about Jesus. The first is his humility. The humility of Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Again, Israel was expecting a mighty tree, not some tender plant growing up in dry ground, right? Dry ground, plants can't grow all that well, right, without the proper nutrition, right? Plants don't grow well in dry ground. You see, Jesus didn't come on the scene as this mighty cedar tree or one of the trees of Lebanon. Certainly that's what Israel was looking for and expecting, not some tender plant that was seemingly weak, insignificant. You know, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, says, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto the point of death, even 
the death on a cross. Jesus came in humility as a tender plant growing up in in dry ground. You know, Jesus grew up in a a Roman-occupied Galilee, a place that was dry with respect to the spiritual climate, the political climate. But it's interesting, God can do the most amazing things out of dry ground. In fact, it was Spurgeon that said, the light will never seem so bright as when the night is very, very dark. You see, Jesus came on the scene at a time when he would shine brighter when the night is very, very dark. And so Jesus came in humility. Isaiah says, as a tender plant. But not just in humility, but we also want to consider his appearance. The second thing that we learn is the appearance of Jesus. Look at the second half of chapter, uh, verse 2. Right, he grows up before him as a tender plant, as, as a root out of dry ground, and he says he has no form of comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Do you ever consider that Jesus might not have been a man of physical attractiveness? He probably wasn't the type of person we might see on the cover of GQ magazine. In fact, if we just back up a couple verses into chapter 52, Isaiah says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Let me ask you this. When you picture Jesus in your mind, what image is there? Do you picture someone with blue eyes, long brown flowing hair, clear complexion kissed by the sun, someone rugged but perhaps gentle? You know, it's interesting. We seem to want to glamorize and and make Jesus perhaps more attractive than he actually was. You know, I think it's interesting, too, that we also kind of like to glamorize and make his gospel, his message, more attractive as well. And it could be that it just goes against his nature. Who Jesus was as a person. I think he was meant to be a little abrasive. I think he was meant to be a little offensive. You see, he needs to confront and deal with our sin. Not glamorize it, not make it more attractive, but deal with it. And the way he has to deal with our sin says that he was marred more than any man. Isaiah said he had no form of splendor, no beauty that we would desire him. No, Jesus' beauty wasn't in his physical form. It wasn't in his appearance. Rather, Jesus' beauty is in the sacrifice that he made for us. It's in what he did. It's why Good Friday is so important to us. You know, I just had a a conversation with someone at work as I was leaving to come here and you know they asked the question what is so good about someone dying on a piece of wood you know and I had a brief few minutes to share the gospel with him and just explain to him why it's so good for us he looks at it and he just sees some, someone of history who died on a cross it means nothing to him There's no significance there. Why would we call this Good Friday? And we call it Good Friday because we know that Sunday's coming. We know what tonight means for us in terms of our faith. We consider his humility, we consider his appearance, but we also have to consider his sorrow and his grief. Verse 3 said that he was despised and rejected by men. 
that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Jesus was a man of sorrow, someone acquainted with grief. You know, the truth is, Jesus probably wasn't the life of the party. No, this was a man who was intimately acquainted with grief. This was a man of sorrows. And don't misunderstand me. Jesus wasn't a man of self-pity. He wasn't sorry for himself or sorry with, for what he was going to have to go through. No, he wasn't full of self-pity as sometimes we often can be. No, Jesus had sorrow, but Jesus had sorrow for others. He was a man of sorrows for the fallen and desperate condition of man. You know, in Luke chapter 19, as, as Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem for the, the triumphal entry, when he allowed himself to be publicly worshipped, right? When Jesus said that if they weren't worshipping, the very rocks would cry out. It says that as he drew near the city, he saw this city and he says that he wept over it. He wept over it. Jesus also said that today salvation has come to this house because he is because he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why Jesus is a man of sorrows. That's why he's acquainted with grief because of our condition. Because of what he's going to have to go through on our account for us. In Mark chapter 14 it says that when they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. It says that he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And he says, stay here and watch. And he went a little farther. He fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death, he says. A man of sorrow, a man of grief. And I think we, as believers, should have a similar heart, a heart of compassion, of love, of sorrow, and of grief for the lost. You know, Paul had this heart. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul said, I would rather give up my salvation to see my brethren get saved, to see my countrymen come to the Lord. He said, I would be willing to be accursed from Christ to see them come to the Lord. That's the kind of heart that Paul had for the lost, those that don't know Jesus. Jesus was broken, he was a man of sorrows. Because he knew that we were separated from God because of our sin, where we are in our sin. And are we willing to come to the same place? Are we broken 
for the sins of the world, for those in our lives that are lost, that don't know Christ, that haven't experienced his salvation, that don't understand why Good Friday is good. Well, we've considered his appearance, we've considered his humility, we've considered his sorrow and grief. Let's consider his affliction. Jesus was afflicted. Verses 4 through 6 say, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was afflicted. And there's two things we want to point out about Jesus' affliction. The first is that it was for us. Notice the pronouns in those few short verses there. Ten times we or our is used. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. Make no mistake, he was afflicted for us. Why did Jesus allow himself to be afflicted? To be marked, scourged, beaten, pierced, crucified? It was for us. For you and for me. Isaiah tells us four reasons that he was afflicted for us, for our grief and for our sorrow. You see, sin brings separation, separation from God. Psalm 51 tells us that we are born into sin and that sin carries with it sickness and pain, grief and sorrow. But he carries our sorrow and our griefs. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Here's the thing. Jesus took our pain, our sorrow, he took our griefs upon himself. He made our griefs and our sorrows his. Do you find yourself carrying around pain, sorrow, grief? Do you belong to Christ? Listen, he took our grief. He took our sorrow. He carried them for us. We need to release them to him. He carried them. He took them for us. We don't need to carry it around. He also took for us our transgressions and our iniquities. Verse 5, our iniquities were laid on his shoulders. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, it says. He bore them and suffered in our place. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. And then Peter quotes Isaiah here by saying, By whose stripes we were healed. 
1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our sins. He took our transgressions. He took our iniquities, and he bore them on the cross for us so that we can be righteous, so that we can be made clean. Well, what was for us? Our grief and our sorrow, our transgressions and our iniquities. But how about our peace? Again, in in verse 5, it says that he took the chastisement of our peace. He took the chastisement that was due us. He was judged. He was punished for us. And he did that so that we could know peace. You know, when Isaiah, in Isaiah 9-9, Isaiah was prophesying about the birth of Christ, and he's called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah prophesies about the Prince of Peace being born, and here, Isaiah tells us that not only is Jesus the Prince of Peace, but he is also the price of peace. It cost him so that we could know peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through who? Through Christ Jesus. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We can have the peace of God. And then he also says, By his stripes we are healed. It is for our healing. First Peter, again, 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus brings healing. And there's been some speculation, there's been some debate over what exactly is meant here. Is it talking about a physical healing? Is it talking about spiritual healing? And I think the answer is simple. It's yes. There is obviously spiritual healing that we receive through Christ, through our faith in him the sacrifice that he made, the work he accomplished on the cross. Right? It removes those transgressions, those iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. We are made right before God. And while there may not always be physical healing, right? even Paul prayed, didn't he? It said Paul, Paul said he prayed three times that the Lord would remove the thorn from in his flesh. Right? And God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't always heal physically, at least not here, not now. But there will be a physical healing that is complete, that is everlasting, right? That we will receive new bodies It's because of his stripes. It's because of what he did on the cross. God will always bring healing. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Jesus' affliction was for us so that he could take our grief and our sorrow, so that he could take our transgressions and our, our iniquities, so he could give us peace and so he could heal us. But the other thing that we want to notice, the other thing we want to consider about the affliction of Jesus is not just that it was for us, but that it was by God. Notice what it says there in verse 4. Jesus was struck down and afflicted by God. Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. By the determined purpose, purpose and foreknowledge of God. Go to the end of the book, Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It was always Jesus' purpose to come and to die. It was always part of God's plan. It's not like God made a mistake. It's not like he created man and went, whoops, that wasn't supposed to happen. What do I do now? God always had a plan. He always had a purpose to redeem us, and it always included his son. His affliction was for us, and it was by God. Let's come to the fifth thing. We said there were nine. We've considered his humility. We've considered his appearance. We've considered his sorrow and grief. We've considered his affliction. Let's consider his silence. Jesus was silent. Verse 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Why didn't Jesus say anything? Well, maybe because there was nothing to confess. In John 19, it says he went again into the praetorium and he said to Jesus, this is Pilate speaking, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Peter says, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus was silent. He said nothing. Why was Jesus silent? There was nothing to confess. No admission of guilt. Right? Jesus was perfect. Sinless. It says that the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Right? And again, Pilate saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you, but Jesus still answered nothing. And that Pilate marveled at this, it says. Jesus had nothing to confess. It's interesting, we have everything to confess, don't we? but we just have to confess him. The sixth thing we want to consider about this chapter is his death, the death 
of Jesus. Verses 8 and 9 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will, de- who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It says he was cut off from the land of the living. Who will declare his generation? The idea there is who will carry his namesake? He had no sons, no daughters, no children to carry his name. And says he was cut off from the land of the living. The idea of being cut off meant it was violent. He didn't just pass away one day. No, they took him from the land of the living. They cut him off. Daniel 9.26 says, After the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour on the house of David and on, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Jesus died so that we could live. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. It says that They made his grave with the wicked, right? That on his right and on his left were two thieves being crucified with him who acknowledged their guilt, right? That one thief on the cross said that we deserve what we're getting. This man has done nothing. But with the rich at his death, right? That Jesus didn't have his own tomb to be buried in, right? It was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Do you see why they may not like this chapter so much? If they were looking for a conquering king, if they were looking for someone to supplant Rome and free them, this is not that. No, this is a chapter where Jesus comes to supplant our sin and our dependence on this world so that we can be free, so that we can have peace with God. But it required his death. It required a cross. Well, how about his righteousness? We've seen his death. We've seen his silence, his, uh, his affliction, his sorrow, his grief. But his righteousness. Verses 10 and 11 says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that he has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall... See his seed. He shall be, uh, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It pleased God to bruise him to put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, you shall see his seed. He shall prolong 
his days. Interesting, this, this whole chapter has been talking about the death of Jesus, the suffering and the affliction of Jesus, yet his days will be prolonged, Isaiah says. I mean, it almost doesn't make sense. If we didn't know Sunday was coming, how can his days be prolonged? The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand to see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He also said, for I have come down from heaven to do... um, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? He said there in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. Paul said that the righteous requirement of the law, law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, Jesus was righteous, and he imputes his righteousness to us because of the work of the cross. You see, it is knowing the Messiah in both who he is and what he has done that makes us righteous before God. You see, we in and of ourselves, we don't have any righteousness right? Without Jesus, we can't stand before God and say, I've done everything right, everything perfect. You have nothing to accuse me of. I mean, I don't know about you, but anybody else in here can say that? I know I can't. If I have to stand before God on my own merits, I'm in big trouble. I don't have any righteousness. In fact, Jeremiah said that the the righteousness of man is as filthy rags. No, it's Jesus's righteousness. It's knowing him. It's having his blood applied to us that gives us our righteousness. That's why, I mean, communion. We're going to partake communion in a few minutes, and that's why it's so significant, so important to us, because it reminds us that it's his blood applied to us. And it's because of his blood, his sacrifice, that we are made righteousness. But if he wasn't righteous first... It would all mean nothing. And that's what brings us to our favorite part. Right? His death was important. His affliction was necessary. But ultimately, it's his victory. Right? The the eighth point that we want to consider this evening is the victory of Jesus. Right? Him going to the cross meant victory for us. It says there in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgression, transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercess, intercession for the transgressors. That idea of dividing the spoil with the strong. Only the victors divide the spoil. Jesus was victorious and he gets to divide the spoils. The image of dividing the spoil after the victorious battle, right? That we see that the Messiah ultimately triumphs. Paul said that when, the, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this immortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. His death brings victory. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can confess him now, today. Or we can wait. But we will all acknowledge who Jesus is. The victor. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. Jesus was victorious. And the victory was was solidified, right, those those three days later. Right, we're gonna celebrate that on Sunday, right, when he conquered the grave. Spoiler alert. The story's not over. Death was only the beginning. Jesus is victorious. And the, the last thing that I, I want to talk about is found at the end there of verse 12. It says that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus makes intercession. Jesus intercedes. And I don't know about you, but that is a comforting thought. Because we also know that we have an enemy, don't we? And the Bible says that he is the accuser of the brethren. Right? That we have an enemy that goes and he stands before God, pointing the finger at us, making accusations about us. And it says that Jesus is there at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Jesus is sitting there saying, no, he's mine, she's mine. They belong to me. They're my spoils in my victory. You have nothing to say here. Jesus intercedes for the transgressors. And I love the thought there because I am a transgressor. I need Jesus. Because without Jesus, the enemy has every accusation he can make. And he'd be right. He'd be right. But Jesus says, no, they're covered by my blood. He says, when I look at them, I see my blood only. They're clean. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. It is the man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus intercedes, and Isaiah here is telling us, Not only was he poured out unto death, not only was he numbered with the transgressions, transgressors, but he is, he is interceding for us, that he is there sitting next to the Father saying, no, they're mine. And I don't know about you, but that brings me so much comfort to know that I have an adversary To know that I have someone who's sitting next to my Father in heaven. Say, no. They're mine. I paid for them. I made the sacrifice. I was afflicted. I suffered so that they don't have to. 
That is why this Friday is good. That is why we call it Good Friday. Because our Lord and Savior died for us. He made the sacrifice that we couldn't make. So I'll take the price. I'll bear it on my shoulders because I know they can't. Jesus cried from the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time in eternity that the Son of God and the Father were separated. It was for you and for me. So that he could make intercession for us. And so, Father, we thank you this evening for that sacrifice. God, that you bore our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities were laid on your shoulders. So that we could come before you, so that we could live eternally. So that we can belong to you. So God, we thank you that you hear our prayers, that you make intercession for us. God, we thank you for what this day means for us. God, and we, Lord, we thank you that Sunday's coming. God, that you conquered the grave. That death wasn't the end. So God, we praise you this evening. And God, we say thank you for the greatest sacrifice that was ever made. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.